Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Alan McKim, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Clean Harbors. Clean Harbors is a $5.6 billion market cap company that provides environmental and industrial services within North America. The company has two segments, environmental services and safety clean sustainable solutions. In the environmental segment, Clean Harbors collects, treats, and disposes of waste within its company-owned landfills and incinerators. In addition, the safety clean division provides cleaning and waste disposal services to customers such as automotive repair shops. In fact, Clean Harbors is the largest recycler of used motor oil in North America. Alan McKim founded the company in 1980 and took it public at $9 in 1987. Over that period of time, Clean Harbors has made a number of large acquisitions, including the transformational merger with Safety Clean in 2012. The company now produces over $3 billion in revenue, and its stock has risen to over $100 per share. It is not often that I have a chance to talk to someone who has run a company for 40 years, so I really enjoyed speaking with Alan about the following topics. The uniqueness of Clean Harbor's asset base and how that creates a moat, how the company decides to take big swings when it comes to M&A, educating people about how Clean Harbor's is a good actor in a world increasingly focused on ESG, the impact of further environmental regulations on the company, and building a cohesive culture over 40 years. Before we begin, just a few disclosures to note. First, Cove Street owns Clean Harbor shares, but most importantly, all the music in this podcast was created and composed by Cove Street's own Jeff Bronchick. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Clean Harbor's chairman and CEO, Alan McKim. As always, we will start this podcast at a critical moment in the company's history. So let's go back to the fall of 2012. You've just announced the deal to acquire Safety Clean for $1.25 billion. This was by far the largest acquisition the company had ever undertaken and was going to really diversify the revenue stream of the company. I would love to hear why you thought Safety Clean was the right company to take such a large swing at and what you saw as a primary benefit of bringing on that asset. Sure. So, uh, Ben, I think it's important to look back even 10 years prior to. Uh, so when you look at 2002, Clean Harbors acquired Safety Clean's environmental services uh, business called the Chemical Services Division. And uh, we bought that business out of bankruptcy. Uh, at the time, uh, that business had both the Safety Clean environmental business and the Chemical Services Division. 
And so our initial uh, interest was in the chemical services division. It gave us uh, a tremendous amount of assets, 3,500 employees, and the majority of the disposal assets that we have today are the result of that acquisition in 2002. Uh, Safety Clean Environmental continued on under private equity ownership, and we continue to have ongoing business relationship with them because at one time they were one company and we knew them very well. They were a big customer of ours. They generated a lot of waste, uh, over $200 million of waste a year. And as the private equity company looked at ways of monetizing, they decided whether they're going to go public or, or maybe sell it to a, another PE firm or a strategic like us. And we really felt like it was the right time for us to uh, acquire that business, uh, knowing it so well uh, for so many years. Really gave us a foothold into the small quantity generator business uh, because it gave us uh, over 200 branch locations in North America, uh, which were you know smaller uh, branch business, 300,000 customers uh, going after a different vertical markets than we historically had. And it really helped drive more waste into our disposal facilities. So it's interesting. To say, sorry, I was going to say it's interesting to say that you were so familiar with that asset. Would you would did, did, did that allow you to hit the ground running culturally and and in terms of integrating the businesses, or would you say it took a little while for you to figure out how to put these two businesses together? You know, I think we really understood the business well. We knew a lot of the people there. We had done business with them together. Uh, and we had a lot of uh, former safety clean employees working for us because, again, we took on 3,500 people when we did the first uh, uh, acquisition of safety clean chemical services division. Um, I would say that uh, the first year, uh, which was 2013, we closed in December of 2012. That first year was a really difficult year. Uh, what we saw was a significant decline and the value of the recycled products that Safety Clean was uh, creating. And uh, being a, a waste oil collection business, we also had a significant waste oil collection business, but Safety Clean uh, had unique assets that were allowing to re-refine oil and uh, sell those uh, products. And the value of those products significantly um, became under pressure. Even though price of crude oil was relatively stable, uh, the value of the oil uh, really came under pressure, and it really forced us to take out a lot more cost, uh, really go at the synergies a lot faster. Uh, and I would say that uh, in the first year or two, you know, it, it was a tough going for us. Um, but I, I think as we look back here today, uh, you know, it's a wonderful acquisition, and uh, we continue to to build off of the that infrastructure and that footprint that we got. Yeah, I would agree that it, it really feels like in the last few years when COVID kind of notwithstanding, it feels like you guys are like the co- combined companies are really hitting on, on all cylinders. And so, but given how much the investing world is focused on ESG and companies that are considered to be the good guys when it comes to the environmental side, the fact that Safety Clean collects and then recycles substances like used oil, that would suggest that you know, Safety Clean was really, really well positioned for the world that exists today. Was that a major aspect, kind of the environmental aspect? Was that a, a, a major aspect of the original acquisition? Or um, is that more of just a, it's, it's a benefit that's kind of accrued over time where you've seen like, the, you know, the, 
the ESG positive associated with owning the safety clean asset? Well, I think two things. We clearly, uh, the, the closed loop that safety clean had, uh, First, remember that they had a large install base of pots washer machines out there at automotive and, and uh, industrial sites. And so a big part of that closed loop was taking that solvent, bringing it back to their recycling facilities, re-refining it, and then giving it back to the customers again over and over and over again. So that, that first recycling aspect of Safety Clean dates back 60 years. Uh, but oil, number one player in recycling of oil, we also had a huge chemical recycling business. Um, we've seen that the shift where companies are looking to have more and more recycling as an alternative to disposal. And so more and more of the waste that we collect, we're the largest hazardous waste collector in North America. So more of what we collect is being recycled. And then ultimately we have the uh, end disposal sites to handle the residues, but. Uh, it, it was absolutely right in our sweet spot for uh, going after those assets. And I'm sorry if this is a little of a tangent, and I, this may be an old wives' tale, but is it really true that in some states, used motor oil is not considered a hazardous substance, and people can basically put it down the drain? Is that is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I, you know, it's certainly possible. Uh, there are many states that. Uh, Waste oil is exempt from the RECRA hazardous waste rules. States like New Jersey, Massachusetts, California, it, it's a hazardous waste and it's taxed as a hazardous waste. But there are other states that um, you know, don't treat it so. But I would say that the days of putting it down the drain are probably long gone. I think that um, companies realize that uh, this is a valuable product. Uh, there's a uh, a value to recycling and reusing this material. And they, they want to be a good steward to the environment as well. Got it. And, and one thing that I'm always interested in that I think a lot of investors don't ask about is, you know, the importance and of brands and whether or not you should, when you make an acquisition, you should maintain a brand or you should, you should, you know, go from turn everything into clean harbors. But it's interesting since you have such a long history of owning safety, clean branded uh, assets, why, you know, what's the value of keeping that safety clean name as opposed to saying everything in this in, in this company's clean harbors? It's a great question. We've debated it many times. And safety clean, as I mentioned, a 60 year old company with a, a wonderful reputation in the automotive industry. And uh, it, um, it 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 has a big presence in NASCAR, uh, you know, their, their products, uh, the types of services that they offer. Uh, those big yellow trucks that they've run for years and years have, um, you know, real strong uh, name recognition in the market. And so uh, we, we really have thought about consolidating them together. But I, I think we've recognized that for the customer base that we're servicing under the safety clean business and for the types of services that we offer, uh, it really does make sense to continue to build on that strong brand that they have both in the U.S. and Canada. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So moving to, you know, from the initial safety clean deal to more of the present in a strange symmetry, I don't know if you even recognize this, but the, the hydrochem deal that, that you just announced was for the exact same amount, 1.25 billion. Um, I thought that was kind of funny, but so, you, you know, this is, it, it appears that you guys think that this is the time to take another big swing. So what, 
you know, why Hydrochem and then why is this the right time, do you think, in the company's evolution to, you know, be adding another billion dollar plus acquisition? Sure. Well, we certainly love being number one in, in the markets, you know, that we're, we're servicing. We're the number one player in used motor oil, number one pots washer service company, number one hazardous waste management company. Um, up until now, we've really been sort of the number three player in the industrial area. Uh, you know, we have a, a strong presence in Canada and, and in the U.S. Uh, I think we really feel that the scale will really be important for us as we think about what customers are looking for. Uh, they're looking for um, suppliers that can handle multiple plants. They're really trying to consolidate suppliers. They're also looking for suppliers that can bring technology to differentiate, you know, sort of the ways that they've been handling the maintenance at their plants. And Hydrochem has invested heavily in uh, R&D and developing these hands-free technologies, which really goes well into our whole safety culture here. Uh, we have an R&D group down in LaPorte, Texas, but it hasn't anywhere near advanced as the Hydrochem team that's been in business a lot longer than we have in the industrial space. Um, safety is really what we're all about. And, and if we can go out and perform a service on a customer's site with less people, with more uh, technology, hands-free technology particularly, that's going to make us safer and the customer is going to see, you know, a lower cost. And, and I think those are the things that, that we see as combining our, uh, our uh, capabilities together on the industrial side. And they don't provide any disposal to their customer base. So we've got these wonderful disposal assets that are nearby their service locations. And we see this as another great opportunity to do more recycling, particularly the oils that get collected as part of the industrial cleaning and really, really take our recycling uh, into their customer base. Definitely. That makes sense as well. And you mentioned that when you first bought Safety Clean, the first two years were a little bit of a tough go. Anything that you learned from integrating that Safety Clean deal, the second one in, in, in um that will help you, I think, will help you with the Hydrochem integration? You know, we've done about 65 acquisitions in our history here. And um, we've learned uh, through those uh, acquisitions that it's really important for us to, to get them on our platform day one or as close to day one as possible. We're not a company where we like to run multiple ERP systems and run consolidation, you know, on financials and what have you. We want to put people right on our platform. If they have something unique, some proprietary system that enables them to, to function maybe a little bit more efficiently, we'll certainly look at that. But, you know, we have built out sort of a proprietary uh, platform to run our entire business. All 50 lines of business, you know, three and a half billion dollars of revenue. Our whole quote to invoice system is all done on our proprietary system. And so by getting the acquisition day one on our platform, we really get control of the business. We're able to get our synergies as quickly as possible because it's really important for us to get the costs out of the business, you know, quickly, uh, but also to leverage, you know, the basically the capabilities of our technology, whether it be, you know, the Salesforce technology that we have, which is, you know, cloud-based CRM um, and, and really tying in the sales organization together 
you know, on that one common platform. Those, those are some of the things that I think we've learned over the years. It's really important for us to do. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, CoStreet rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts the transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. So as you mentioned, you've done a lot of acquisitions over over your tenure. I'm interested. So so obviously getting something on the ERP early seems like uh, something that you've really settled on. Any other ways in which your strategy, either regarding the, like the, the strategic rationale for acquisitions or the way you integrate them, anything else changed over you know all the deals that you've done? You know, I you, you certainly learn um, every time you do a deal, it's going to be different, and and sometimes you um, you learn, and sometimes you learn the hard way with safety, clean, uh, environmental. Uh, they had um, uh, SAP as uh, their uh, general ledger and some of their financial systems, for example. And we let that stay up for three or four years uh, to handle their, basically their inventory and supply chain. And uh, we, we just should have put it off and, and done it right away and shut it down. And we didn't. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that that's a good example where we just held on too long with some technology that came with the deal that we shouldn't have taken. I, I, I Again, I'll go back to you know, sort of we have a playbook, we, we have a, a very good uh, leadership team here on how to do the integration. Typically, we have about 35 different teams that, you know, encompass hundreds of people that come from both the acquired company and our company. And we really work together to make sure that we've got the right structure, put the right players on the field. I think we've learned long ago that you got to put the right person in the job. It doesn't have to be the clean harvest person or the hydrochem person. Who's the right person that's going to now take on this much bigger role, for example, in running a region or running a sales force. So I, I, I think, you know, that whole commercial side of business has been really important for us to, to really focus on. We've talked a lot. We've talked a lot about safety clean so far, but I want to move over to the environmental services side. So, so when I think about the moat around this company, I think of the fact that you own nine of the 13 non-captive incinerators in North America. And from my knowledge, no one has built a new incinerator in North America since Clean Harbors built the one in El Dorado, Arkansas. So that seems like a pretty sturdy moat. For people who are not familiar with the incineration world, why is it so hard to get these facilities approved and to build them? Uh, you know, certainly you have the not in my backyard syndrome. I uh, uh, When you look at where our incinerators are located. They're very much in remote areas for the most part, outside of Deer Park, which is right in the Houston Chip Channel area. Almost all of our assets in 
you know, 600, 1200 acre plots that, you know, in very remote areas. Uh, we tried back in the late eighties to site an incinerator at one of our uh, plants here in the Northeast. And it just became a lightning rod for opposition. So I, I think because of that history, I think people realized that the, to go through the greenfield permitting is almost impossible. Um, and so it's much better for us to take an existing site like Kimball and say, hey, we've got a great relationship with the community. We've got a big footprint there. Let's, let's think about putting a second unit in uh, to that particular location. So that's been our approach on how to uh, expand our incineration. So you mentioned the Brownfield uh, expansion at Kimball, which is in Nebraska. There's, I mean, it just seems like, as you said, this is always such a risky thing where, you know, the, the community can push back and there's, and these things take a long time to build and to test. So why, you know, why is that a good use of shareholder capital ra- rather than spending on M&A or other organic uh, growth opportunities? Like why, why is that Kimball expansion? I think is, is, is the right time for that? You know, what we've seen uh, over the past 20 years is um, over a hundred captives uh, that that were operating back in the day have have slowly but surely shut down. Many of these companies that run their own incinerators have either decided that they don't want to continue to be in the incineration business and invest the capital, or because of mergers or divestitures or acquisitions that have taken place in their industry or their business, those facilities became antiquated and. And so whether you look at a Kodak up in Rochester, New York, or a GE in Waterford, Connecticut, uh, Waterford, New York, you, you, you have these captives. And over a period of time, we're now down to about 50 of them. And we continue to see more customers interested in outsourcing uh, more of their waste, which is um, similar to what you saw with the 3M announcement, where 3M has got an incinerator. It's only 20 years old, but they've decided that, that they want to partner with us in outsourcing that material. So our, at least our uh, vision is, is that more of those captives are going to close, more is going to be outsourced. And we also think that more manufacturing is going to be coming on shore. I think the disruptions that we've seen as a result of COVID and the disruption in supply chain, I believe... And, and I think other people would agree that more chemical manufacturing and general manufacturing is going to come back to the states. And with that, there's going to be more generation of waste. Uh, the low price of natural gas has certainly spurred uh, the development of uh, more uh, chemical plants uh, in the Gulf, uh, in, in Pennsylvania even. And so more, that cheap natural gas is really going to help drive more uh, industry to set up shop here and generate more waste. And we want to be prepared to service those customers. That makes sense. So one thing I've always liked about this company is that, you know, you've proven over and over again, that you're willing to take some short-term margin pain in, in exchange for long-term gains. But I'm interested how you've been able to get the organization to be okay with making a longer term investment, whether it was in El Dorado or in Kimball, where these things take a long time to play out. Like how do you how do you get people comfortable with with investments like that that don't have an immediate payoff? You know, I think the company's really focused on return on invested capital. We're really focused on free cash flow. 
Um, there are certainly four components of the use of cash, you know, whether we're buying back stock or we're doing acquisitions or we're paying down debt or making big capital investments. And I think we look at all four of those regularly to try to make sure are we, you know, doing the right thing for our shareholders. And, you know, as you know, debt is so cheap today. Um, and we've got such a great rating for both Moody's and SAP, SAP. So we can we can borrow money relatively cheaply and compared to, you know, issuing uh, equity. And um, I, I think we've just said, let, let's look at all these things. And I think the incineration uh, investment has proven, particularly with the El Dorado plant that we built, that these, these really become a home run for the company. It, it might take three or four years to build it and, and 150 million or so dollars in investment. But, uh, you know, we, we see nothing but upside, to be honest with you. One of my favorite investors likes uh, to invest with companies who have, quote unquote, the willingness to suffer. And it sounds like this company has that. And I mean, in the sense that like there's there's short term pain for long term gain. But I always like to ask management teams uh, and CEOs about are there areas where you wish you had been willing to suffer more or had put more money in maybe five or 10 years ago that you think would have paid off um, handsomely years later? Um. That's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure if uh, we, I, I guess what I would say is I wish we didn't suffer as much in some of the acquisitions we've made. Um, so uh, as, as you know, we got involved in the oil and gas uh, side of the business. We saw the shale revolution coming. We saw the opportunity not only in the U.S. but Canada. And, and um, we made the Everetti acquisition in 2009, which really gave us a strong footprint uh, in Alberta and particularly up in the oil sands, as well as in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, with that came a number of different types of businesses, quite frankly, that are not synergistic with our service offering. And so I, I think we probably could have divested them faster. Um, we went through a real bad downturn in 2014 when the price of crude oil really went down. And uh, so I think I think in that case, we suffered longer than we wished that we had uh, with, with that investment that we made. Before we leave the, the incinerator side, you guys had a little trouble with Eldorado when it first started up. And I think that that's pretty common in, in the industry where it just like takes a little while to get these facilities really going. But have you learned anything about building that facility that can make the, the Kimball expansion less costly and, and maybe even more ready to start running the second it's completed? You know, I think we're going to be able to build it faster. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit more expensive only because of all of the inflationary cost increases that you've been hearing about. That plant was the first plant built in over 20 years, and we had to meet the new MAC-2 standards. That's the air pollution control standards needed to meet the most, most current air regulations. And I would say that uh, some of the back-end air pollution control technologies, particularly our spray dryer technology, uh, we had a number of issues. We actually had a, a, a disagreement with our contractor on that. And uh, I, I would say that that took us an extra year to work through so that we met the requirements of our air pollution control systems, but also was allowed to run the plant 
uh, you know, from a rateability standpoint. And, and so we did learn significantly uh, around that whole spray dryer issue. Um, I would say that we'll, we'll certainly uh, take those learnings into this new plant. And our expectation is, is that the plant will come online faster and without, you know, sort of those difficulties that we learned from. You mentioned regulation, so I'd love to talk a little bit about that. I think it's always important for shareholders to remember that regulators are important stakeholders for all companies. But in the case of Clean Harbors, you're handling such messy waste and that you're regulated by a number of entities. What is your general approach to creating a win-win relationship with your regulatory stakeholders? Yeah, as you can imagine, uh, we're heavily regulated. We have over 450 permitted uh, facilities and, and, and permits that, 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 uh, that we abide by. And so it's so critical that we manage our uh, operations uh, appropriately. Um, but also our customers also have to abide by those same permits. And so uh, those same type of permits, those same type of regulators. So it's what drives the demand for our services but it's also what we have to make sure that we're abiding by. I would say that our approach has been that we only can get better when a regulator comes into our facility and, and not only are they doing an inspection, but they're bringing their knowledge about what's happening in other plants and other uh, locations. And, you know, how do we, how do we learn from them? How do we look at what they're focused on and how do we, kind of make that best practice so that we can improve in our, uh, our safety and our compliance. So, um, you know, the legacy that I want to leave behind here is one of safety. I want people to say, hey, Clean Harbors was the company that was so successful because it was the safest company. Its employees operated safely and it really was a company that really focused on compliance. So going on that theme a little bit, um, this company has periodically received some minor fines from various regulators. I think that happens across the space. But how do you use those situations as learning moments that helps the company get better? Like what, well, how do you communicate with people? How do you, you know, how do you, if someone violated something, like how do you deal with those people in a way that, you know, allows them to get better as opposed to, you know, feeling shamed or like they don't belong anymore? Sure. Well, I, I chair the safety committee here at the company, and I, I can tell you that um, we look at every single uh, notice of violation or any uh, financial penalties. And um, what we have tried to do is build out the systems and processes so that we can do a better job of uh, inspecting our facilities, uh, whether it be leak detection and repair, whether it be just the simple inspections or the... Um, you know, the uh, monitoring that needs to take place. And I think also working with the regulators, um, if we do receive a financial penalty, because a lot of the regulators are incentivized certainly to find something, you know, that's, that's their job, right? They want to come in, they want to find something, uh, they want to uh, educate us on, on what they see that we could do to improve. Um, and so what we've tried to do is develop uh, methodologies here that really emulate what they do. And so when a regulator comes into our plants, our compliance people have already been operating like them coming into our plants, you know, and, 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 and so you're still going to get opportunities for a regulator to find something uh, that they can write us up. 
but it, it's just that continuous learning that we want to make sure to improve in how we run our company. I think some people think of the term regulation and they think this is a regulation is a negative for companies. But for clean harbors, the more the EPA and other bodies crack down on chemicals and other forms of waste, the bigger the opportunity. I'm interested in how you position the company to benefit from changing regulations. Do you have to try to look around the corner and acquire technologies? Do you have to try to anticipate where regulators are going to go? Or, you know, you've been doing this for, for 40 years and, you know, this that's just part of the DNA is to kind of move with the tide. I think we certainly try to have an influence. Uh, we recently, uh, you know, worked with uh, some of the congressional uh, leaders to uh, help get a bill passed that the Department of Energy ultimately uh, did a study uh, around waste oil and, and the use of waste oil. And from that study came out of, came out uh, 18 different recommendations, almost all of it around trying to get more reuse of our recycled oils, you know, to try to get more of these oils away from being burnt as a fuel or being used as a waste oil heater uh, fuel supply, but really trying to figure out how to take this into a, become more of a green product. And, and I think uh, that's where I think um, we can help, you know, sort of shape some of these uh, regulations and participate in these different industry groups, whether it's the Hazardous Waste Treatment Council or some of the other groups out there. Uh, so we, we are trying to be, um, you know, a leader in that. Uh, but we also recognize that, you know, the regulations are, are a two-edged sword, right? I mean, they're, 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 they're good because it drives more business for us, but we also have to make sure that we're staying on our toes. That makes sense as a strategy. Thanks for sharing that. So jumping around a little bit, um, getting to the, the, the route network that you operate. So I'm, I'm generally a big fan of route businesses because if you have a dense network, it's not too hard to add new customers to the route and that in itself can reduce the cost of collection. So is it crazy for me to think that the oil collection and parts washing businesses that have these distinct routes, there's a moat around them due to that network. Is that a fair assessment? It really is. You know, this is a subscription business, much more, uh, much different than the legacy clean harvest business. So when you think about safety clean, you know, 40,000 orders a week are generated automatically because of those subscriptions that are set up. And all of those routes are automatically routed through dynamic uh, background optimizers to figure out what's the most efficient way for us to handle those routes. And then the ability to add to those routes. How do we sell into those routes? How do we figure out a way to get more route density inside those routes uh, is really all part of, you know, the success that we've seen uh, since owning the safety clean business. I think there's some perception out there that especially the uh, some of your customers who you know do oil changes and break jobs and stuff like that, like those businesses will be impacted as the world moves to more electric vehicles. I'd love to hear how you think about that both threat and opportunity is, you know, maybe we're just producing less use motor oil as the world becomes more electrified. How's, how do you think about that? You know, I think <clears throat> at least for the next 10 years, we, we don't think it's going to be material. Uh, as as maybe uh, adoption becomes uh, more significant, 
um, you know, that may lower the val lower the volume of uh, lube oil that that is demanded. But when you think about where you know oil is being used today, it's industrial oil. It's in off off site. Um, what do you uh, you know off street oil? Uh, you know, like the the big um, yellow iron that you you have out there, boats and you know marine and there's so many different places where lubricating oil today is being used and generated and uh, it's not all going to go away. And uh, today uh, over a billion gallons of used motor oil is generated just in the States and only about 500 million of that is re-refined. And so we, we know that uh, more oil can be re-refined and we know that the market is growing Um but at some point, you know, if the electric vehicle market really takes off and the electrification across, you know, the United States happens, which is, you know, a big investment that would be needed, maybe the demand for lube oil down the road will will uh, not be as great as it is today. Yeah, it sounds like there's some puts and takes there. Um, another thing that I'm curious about is the closed loop, which we haven't, you, you mentioned a little bit, but the idea that you could collect the used motor oil, re-refine it, and then sell it back to your customers as opposed to them buying, you know, a virgin um, motor oil. I mean, you've had that business for a while. It just feels like I would assume in, in the world today, that would be an incredibly compelling offering um, for your customers from an ESG perspective. So why, why do you think there's been a slow uptake there? And, and, and do you think that some of the things that we're seeing in the world today are, may catalyze a more adoption of the closed loop? Yeah, I think, I think we're going to see a, you know, further acceleration in the growth in that side of our business. We, this year, the, uh, in the beginning of this year, we broke out our bulk products and services business from the SK environmental business. And I think one of the things we realized is that, you know, we just had a lot of different things to sell. And, under one sales force, under one service delivery. And we really needed more focus. And so breaking out our used motor oil collection and our lube oil delivery, essentially the closed loop side of our business, we felt that um, with that focus, we'll be able to do a better job of number one, managing the spread, and number two, growing our direct lube oil business. We also realized that we probably knew a much better job of marketing and promoting that whole green closed loop aspect. And um, I think you'll see more and more of us uh, generating more excitement around that side of our business. That the closed loop is just another one, I think of your really interesting assets and in some of which I would call almost irreplaceable. And so as one of the things that's always perplexed me about clean harbors, and this is an issue that persists today, is that um, this company, despite those assets and the stock seem to trade at a discount to some of the other waste management peers. I don't know how much you guys think about that, but I'd be interested to hear if you had any sense for why that is like what, what, or when, what might people be maybe underappreciating about your assets relative to, you know, someone like a waste management, for example. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's a frustration that we have when we see the multiples that they enjoy. Um, you know, they, they, they enjoy much higher um, EBITDA uh, margins. Um, they have a much simpler business, uh, as you can as you can imagine. I, I think uh, 
you know, maybe owning 250 landfills and a number of transfer facilities and a whole bunch of collection trucks and really be kind of singular focused on that with a much larger market between, you know, residential and uh, industrial. Um, and so I, I think, you know, they've done a wonderful job of, of driving costs out of those businesses, whether it's for public or waste. And, um, and I think they've been rewarded handsomely, you know, for that. And I, and I think that, again, that repetitive nature, that subscription side of their business, I think they really get re rewarded for that and a much higher multiple than we do. I think to some extent, it might be the nature of our business where, you know, we do a lot of emergency response work. We do a lot of project work. We do have certainly a uh, billion dollars of what I would say, you know, repetitive generating kind of waste that are coming out of manufacturing, you know, day in and day out. But some of our revenues are uh, project uh, and not subscription based. And I think we probably get a little penalized uh, because of that. Uh, what, do you want, what do you want to call lack of visibility or predictability there? I also think that we have, from a cash flow standpoint, though, you know, I, I, I look at the amount of capex that you know some of these companies uh, have to spend, and I, I look at what we've done, and you know, I think our ROIC, you know, is coming up on dig, double, uh, double digits here pretty soon. I think I think we're running a really good business here, and I hope at, at, at some point we can continue to see an expansion of our multiple. And the foundation, I think, of any good business is the people. So I'd love to spend a little more time on that. So you founded this company back in 1980, more than 40 years ago. Over that time, what have you learned about building a sustainable and cohesive culture within a company that has so many assets and so many people running around? I mean, it sounds like safety is kind of the, the core of that, but I'd love to hear, you know, from giving your incredible perspective on this, like how to how you thought and, and maybe how your, how your views have evolved on, on creating and building cultures. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, question because, you know, through acquisitions and, and, and through um, growth, you know, how do you keep that culture uh, live and, and, and how, how do you make sure that you have a consistent culture across all the business that you do? Uh, it is always a work in process in my mind. Uh, it is about communications it's about, you know, getting your leadership team regularly together. It's about creating sort of that vision and, and, and understanding of how, what kind of company are we? How do we run our business? What are our uh, core values? You know, kind of laying, you know, sort of that mission out there that everybody can get behind. Because we do great things. Uh, you, you have to be a unique person and want to work for our company. You know, the bell rings. We're running out the door. You know, right now we're dealing with Hurricane Ida. We're, we're down there and we're going to mobilize everything and anything that our customers need, as well as our own uh, staff needs. And uh, that takes a unique kind of individual to want to wanna, you know, uh, be in this kind of business. And uh, I think we've just been so fortunate uh, to have not only a great group of employees, but a great group of leaders who have stayed with the business, have grown with the company. And, uh, and now when you, when you look at the, 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 the depth of leadership here, it's, it's really the best of the best in the industry. And, and I'm really proud of, um, you know, that, and I'm, you know, I'm just, 
proud to be working here with them because I think they're terrific. <clears throat> and in terms of retaining and hiring and compensating people, I would love to hear what you've learned over your career about the best ways to do those things. Because my guess is what you thought about like the right way to compensate people when you first started this business and motivate people has changed a fair amount. And you, you talk about the depth of leadership. How have you learned to you know, maintain and, and, and I'm sorry, retain those kind of people within the organization? <clears throat> In some cases, you know, we haven't uh, been able to retain everybody we want. And, um, I'm happy to to say though that we've <clears throat> we've seen 13 employees leave here and become CEOs of other you know uh, environmental companies and uh, sometimes that's great because that plants a seed that hopefully we can go and um, and and maybe do business with them in the future or acquire them in the future. Um, but at the same token, um, you know we've realized that. You know, sometimes people want to leave because there's, there's no room for them to move up. And I think one of the nice things about our company is because we've grown from $600,000 in 1980 to, you know, where we are today, there's been tremendous opportunity for people to learn new skills, um, to develop themselves inside the company, for us to help educate them, you know, and promote them and, you um, and I, I think because of that, that has really created a fabric inside the company that is really, really strong. You mentioned the idea that 13 people left to, to go be CEOs of another company because, you know, you were kind of sitting in that CEO seat. So I'm wondering how you thought about succession planning and, you know, you have really huge shoes to fill as the founder. Like how, how have you thought about that? And, you know, when... You know, what would be the sign to you to, to you that like, you know, there this, you know, we have the right person to 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 hand the torch over to. Yeah. So we, you know, succession planning is critical for us here. And uh it's something that the board and I uh meet on every board meeting, every quarter. And uh and we talk about succession planning from the book at the board level, you know, to make sure that we're we're bringing in new uh, and 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 uh, new new board members, diverse board members. Um, we're also talking about at my level, you know, both on the short term and long term, uh, and also you know, sort of thinking through all of my direct reports in this succession planning. And uh, and I think you know, part of my job is to make sure that we have a plan in place that the board and corporate governance committee of the board is is. Uh, is bought into. And I think both on the short term and long term, I think we have a good plan in place. Um, I continue to, you know, love doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm still actively involved in leading the company. And I think when the time comes for me to leave, I feel very confident that we have a good plan in place, uh, you know, to keep this company getting to $5 billion and beyond. You mentioned your interactions with the board. And, and I can imagine in those interactions, you have a lot of clout, given that you're the founder, chairman, and CEO. But given that, how do you empower board members to give you real and honest feedback on your initiatives? Because I could just, you know, we imagine as, as outside shareholders, this view of the chairman as, you know, dominating the conversation and, you know, whatever the chairman says goes. How but I think that's not helpful and, and, and it, it helps to have some, a devil's advocate. So how do you foster that within the boardroom? 
You know, I certainly think that our lead director plays an active role in making sure that uh, there is good uh, discussions around uh, strategy, uh, for example, or, or decision-making. Um, this coming September, we'll be having our annual, you know, three-year strategic review uh, and, you know, holding us accountable, you know, to look back and say, okay, what did we say we're going to do and where are we? What are the items that are complete? What's ongoing? And so it's not just holding me accountable, but it's really holding the whole management team accountable for, you know, what the board has signed up for, whether it's the annual budget or that three to five year strategic plan. You know, all the directors on the board, you know, I had no, um, you know, they're not friends of mine, right? So they're, they're, they're professionals that at one time or another were brought in for uh, their expertise at the time that was needed, whether it was in finance or marketing or technology. And, um, and so we, we continue to look at uh, the dynamics of the board as well as look at where the company is and its growth and try to figure out, okay, how do we, what, what's the next director going to look like? How do we challenge ourselves to make sure that we keep bringing on great talent at the board uh, level as well as at the management level. One thing that, one topic that's really interesting to me is how industries evolve and change over time. And so I'm interested, you know, you've probably seen a number of both regulatory changes and business model changes over your tenure at Clean Harbors. So what, what important ways has the collection and disposable industry changed over the last few decades? And how do you create an adaptable organization that can get, can flow with that? You know, I, I think early on in our, let's say in the first 10 years of our existence, we were much more in an emergency response company. It represented a lot of revenues of ours. And uh, I would say that as the use of oil continues to be, uh, reduced, you know, particularly as more and more natural gas is being used, you know, fuel oil particularly, and number six oil in general has been significantly reduced, particularly in power generation. So we've seen a huge decline in the oil spill side of our business. You know, Open 90 put in new regulations to force industry to do a better job of managing their oil terminals. So we got more involved in the maintenance of those oil terminals. So instead of dealing with the aftermath, we're gonna upfront and trying to help our customers deal with the regulations of management of their terminals. Every 10 years, they have to be cleaned and inspected and repaired. You know, so I, I would say that as regulations evolve, as the market has evolved, I think the company has been really doing a good job of evolving itself. Uh, to meet those new changes. And it's one of the reasons why we get into the hazardous waste side of the business is that, you know, we realized that uh, back in the mid 80s, that the new regulations are going to really drive changes to how waste was going to be handled, both recycling as well as disposal. And that's what drove us to really expand in that side of the business. Got it. That makes sense. And then you know, you, you, this has already always been a company that's focused on, you know, the environmental side and, and safety is such a big part of, of, of having a good, you know, kind of social sustainability aspect. But obviously ESG is a big topic these days. Ha, have you had to shift the way the company practices or any of your policies to satisfy the desires of your different stakeholders? Or 
you know, is this stuff you've really been doing for decades and it's not really that new for you? You know, I'd like to think that we've been doing it for decades and we can always do better. We could do more. Um, in regard to diversity and inclusion, for example, I'd always like to think that we were doing that all along, that that's our culture. But I know we can always do better around uh, around those areas as well. So I, I would say that, um, you know, we just published our first ESG report. I think it was terrific, but it was just our first one. And it, it's a start. I think we've shown a tremendous amount of progress in what we're doing to um, improve in this area. But as again, I mean, safety has always been uh, the most important thing uh, in how we run our company. We really think that is one of the top areas of, of uh, any uh, investor who's thinking about making a, an ESG kind of investment. Are these, uh, is this a good company? Are they good to their employees? Are they really safe? And are they really worried about the communities that they're operating in? Uh, all those things are really the checkbox that you can you can check for us. Sticking on the governance side of that a little bit, um, you know, it's something that's really important to us. And 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 in 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 the, in your case, you have the the combined chairman and CEO role. Um, so that gives you know that that is always a question mark in terms of corporate governance. How I'm interested. Um, if you can think of any instances in your career where, you know, interactions with your shareholders have actually been really helpful as you were either considering corporate governance initiatives or capital allocation initiatives, has that, has that, you know, been a, a you know, the long-term relationships with shareholders, has that been helpful in any way? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you always are interested in their uh, advice and their opinions and their insights um, I can't think of a time when anybody questioned my alignment to the company. You know, I'm the largest inside shareholder. I've held my shares almost 42 years now, and um, my interests are aligned to all shareholders. They really are. And, um, and I think that the lead director certainly plays a, a critical role um, in, in the fact that I am chairman and CEO, but the lead director, you know, runs the meetings when I'm not there, takes care of the executive sessions, runs the independent directors meetings. Uh, we have four great committees with, you know, core, core uh, governance and, and comp and EHS and audit. Um, I'm not participating in any of those. So, uh, you know, we, we have a very good, strong board and corporate governance uh, structure here, I believe. And I think we're all aligned. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. It's something I hadn't really thought of, but uh, I actually teach a, a class on, on corporate governance to UCLA undergrads every year. And I actually use you as an example um, because you over a period of a long period of time have sold down some of your stake, right? Which makes sense, right? But people somehow sometimes have this reaction, well, oh my goodness, the CEO is selling stock, there must be something wrong. And my point to the students is that if this person still has a meaningful stake, like, that person is still aligned and there may be other reasons for their selling. Maybe they've set up a foundation, right? You can't just say, Oh no, the CEO is selling stock. Like that is an immediate you know, red flag. Yes. Yeah. And I, I did set up a foundation and um, you know, there's been a number of, uh, of interest that my family and I have had uh, particularly here in the greater Boston area that we've been uh, strong supporters of, and we'll continue to be strong supporters of. It's really, 
you know, uh, important for us to give back to the community and, and, and substantial amount of what I've been doing with shares that I've been uh, divested have been around my, my uh, foundation, you know, uh, and, and I'll continue to do that, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's why we focus so much on the motivations of people as opposed to just like, you know, looking at a spreadsheet or looking at a, a share sale as something that is, you know, that that that, that suggests that you're not aligned. Um, so just a totally random topic that uh, I don't think I've ever seen discussed. You know, you guys have such a strong footprint in the U.S. and you mentioned the assets in Canada you acquired that, you know, obviously was was not did not was not timed particularly well. Is there any reason or is there is is there any way that international MA would ever cross your radar? Or is that the regulatory differences and where your expertise really lies? This is just like there's no it's just like outside of your circle of competence to think about what you know, some other waste collection business in another country. So in the industrial side, um, the company had a number of uh what I would call either joint ventures or operations offshore uh, that came particularly during the EverReady acquisition. Uh, there was a joint venture in China. Uh, there was one, um, uh, I think in Greece, uh, there was a catalyst recycling company he- headquartered in the UK. And we divested all of them. Uh, and it was predominantly because we just didn't have scale. Uh, Safety Clean, on the other hand, had a large business based in the UK that serviced a lot of different countries over there, providing the exact same businesses they did here in the US. And they sold that when they were in bankruptcy. I mentioned back in 2000, 2002. Safety Clean Europe exists today and is a very strong brand in Europe and uh, it's private equity owned. A company like that might be a, a company that would be sort of the footprint that we would need to springboard from uh, if we were able to put together a deal uh, uh, on something like that. But unless we had scale, unless we had size, um, we probably wouldn't just go over and open up an office. We really need facilities. You know, safety is so important. And, you know, we were servicing a, a tremendous amount of refineries to do catalyst work at refineries all over the world. And we really didn't feel comfortable from a safety standpoint that we had, you know, sort of the scale to do that. And that's why we uh, we sold in, uh, out of that business back then. But there, I hope at some point there would be an opportunity because the regulatory environment is pretty good there. And, and that's what we need more than anything. We need to have sort of a good framework of regulations that we can set up shop in. Uh, so I, I would say that, you know, Still plenty of room to grow here in the States and in, in Canada, but we're keeping our eyes open. Yeah, I can imagine having a cohesive and consistent safety culture around the world would be really hard. Um, and sticking on the safety thing, I mean, you, you mentioned that, that that's part, that like you want that to be your legacy, that you leave a, a company that was focused on safety. Any other things that you would like to to leave with the company? Is it either cultural or, you know, focus on free cash flow or ROIC? Any, anything that else that, that like, when, you know, w- whenever you decide that, that you want to pass the torch, like you want your successor and all of his or her reports to really have imprinted on their, on their desk somewhere? 
Yeah, I, I think it really gets into our core values around safety and about quality and, and how we treat people with respect and customer service and how we want to make sure that, you know, we have a reputation as being a top, you know, service company to our customers. I think, I think when we think about those core values that, that we try to instill and every year we honored, honor at least 100 employees uh, for their uh, excellence in a particular area around our core values. I think that would be something that I would love to see sustained, uh, you know, when I'm gone and, and uh, carried on because I think, it, you know, people are so proud of getting up on that stage every year and getting an award around safety or around compliance, around quality customer service or teamwork and communication. Those, those things sort of, we build on momentum always. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, you know, pretty pleased with uh, the kind of company we are. I mean, you've seen a lot of success. I think you said you started with 600,000 in, in revenue, you know, a long time ago, and we're over 3 billion now. Any other elements of that success? I mean, you've talked a lot about culture. Um, any other disciplines or elements of that success that you would point out for, you know, someone who's founding his or her own company and wants to, to, to embed that within, within their uh, kind of view of the world? Yeah, I would just, um, <clears throat> I guess what I would say is not, not letting our tentacles get too far extended. Um, we, um, we probably reached further uh, out than we should have in some areas to try to get more waste to come into our facilities. You know, we, we worked, you know, a deal to acquire a company that maybe had a landfill or maybe had a treatment plant, but it came with a lot of other things that we said, oh, we'll take care of those things. We'll make them better. Um, and so I think, um, you know, really our focus and to make sure that we don't spread ourselves into areas that are not part of really what our focus should be, I think is something that I've certainly, I think we've learned and, um, and, and probably all of us here in the management team have, have seen, you know, cause sometimes markets change so quickly uh, that, you know, um, you get caught sometimes. And, and, and we've seen that happen a couple of times here. I don't want to see that happen again. And just sticking on the idea of, of, of capital allocation for a second. Uh, Cause you know, I mentioned, you mentioned that uh, you know, ROIC has been such a big part of, of compensation and the way you measure yourself. You know, we don't see many CEOs that have that North Star. We wish they did. That return on investment capital, like everything we should do, I should should have a higher return than our weight average cost of capital. Where did that emanate from? Like, where where did you develop that North Star? I would say that one of our board members uh, and one of our shareholders together. Um, really took issue with the lack of return on invested capital that we were generating here. And um, it wasn't simply that take this number from here and make it that, you know, it was the continuous improvement expectation that they had, that, that we weren't building on it. Our, our ROIC has not always been where it is today. And I think that um, we weren't paying close enough attention to it. We were certainly looking at our capital budget. We're looking at, you know, sort of good use of, of um, 
uh, you know, good returns on our investment to replace equipment or expand equipment or plants. But overall, um, it wasn't at the level that that it should have been. And I, and I would say, you know, with a couple of shareholders pounding their fist and one of our board members really making taking issue with it, I think that we realized that uh, we needed to change. And um, and I think that's how it came about, to be honest with you. Interesting. That, so another example where shareholders were helpful in, in, in your path. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to close uh, with the question that I always ask our guests. Um, I think we've talked a lot about the asset base of this con- company and, and things that maybe people don't appreciate. But what do you, would you say are the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspects of your business that you would want to leave you know, anyone who is interested in this company to understand? I think the repetitive nature of our revenue streams, I think that, um, you know, we, uh, I think we have a, a bottoms up approach to budgeting by account, by line of business. And I think that we have very, very good visibility into our revenue and, um, and, and when you look at that coupled with the last, particularly the last three or four years, the continuous improvement quarter over quarter with our financial performance, you know, we digested the safety clean acquisition. Uh, we had our challenges as a result of some market uh, uh, issues that we, we had to deal with. But we've really now got, you know, the business doing extremely well. That business generated about 150 million of EBITDA when we bought it. It probably went down to about 70. It's gonna generate close to 300 million this year uh, in EBITDA. It, 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 and we see nothing but upside, you know, to continue to, to kind of grow that business. So I, I, think, um, I, I think people, hopefully they'll continue to look at the success that we've had in integrating that acquisition and look at this next acquisition that we're making with Hydrochem and realize that we, we really expect to do the same um, and, and really kind of drive those kind of margin improvements. Yeah, well, it sure feels, as I mentioned, it feels like the machine is, is really running. And so we are looking forward to seeing you know, what, what Hydrochem brings in terms of those opportunities. So Alan, this has been incredible. Um, an incredible overview of the, how the industry has changed and you know, what you've learned Thank you so much for the time. This this has really been a a really valuable conversation. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at costreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.